Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a very exciting guest. You know, it's not the typical SaaS, you know, company that you would think of, but I think that nonetheless, a really, really interesting journey, uh, especially figuring out product market fit without being in the market. You know, think about that. Uh, be, before going into it, you know, I'd like to remind you all that my latest book just came out. It's called Selling Your Startup, and it's all about the roadmap to really understanding how you get to an exit. Uh, and basically, it's all about understanding what the finish line is going to look like and then reverse back engineer the process to really understand how to get there. So I couldn't find any books or any information around this when I went through the acquisition of my last company. And that was the main reason why I thought that bringing this to life would be a great resource for founders. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you are in the M&A process or you are thinking about it or you got some inbound. You know, it's really all a matter of really understanding where you're going before you have to, uh, have to actually go in that direction so that you have full visibility. So without further ado, let's get into it here today because I think that our founder, you know, has been at it for quite a bit. Uh, and I think that, you know, we're going to be learning quite a lot when it comes to biotech. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tim Sweeney. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. Looking forward to it. So, so tell us a little bit about, you know, here in your case, I mean, you grew up in Colorado. So how was, how was life growing up there? Uh, I don't have anything to compare it to, but good, I guess, you know, uh, <laughs> plenty of time in the mountains and outdoors, uh, rock climbing, hiking, mountaineering, that kind of thing. So it's interesting because, you know, to a certain degree, you know, you're talking about like uh, climbing mountains and, 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 and all of this stuff. I mean, to a certain degree, that is, that is building a company. I think, I think they're both sort of personal journeys. You know, there's, there's the, you gotta, you gotta make it through that, um, as my as my climbing buddy used to say, you got to make it through the pain cave to get to the top. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, both are both can be lonely at times. I agree with that. Oh, a hundred percent. The problem with startups is that you don't, you know, there's not a peak. You know, when you when you think you're getting to the peak, there's a new one that opens up. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, it, it will be interesting. You know, now, you know, in in a little bit when we get into that, into what you are up to. But I guess before that, you always knew at a very young age that you wanted to do a biotech. You know, one day. So, so why was that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's a funny thing. I mean, as we were, as we were chatting, I, I was reflecting that um, I wrote my college entrance essay that was sort of about like, oh, you know, someday I want to start this company. I think I just had 
um, a true belief that if you really want to make a difference and scale scale an intervention, you have to do that basically through through a company. And so I sort of I knew I wanted to be focused in, you know, it sounds kind of uh, cheesy, but but trying to make people's lives better. I thought that the way to do that was building products that would make people's lives better. And the way to do that is, you know, founding a company that changed the field. And so didn't didn't have any idea that I would be doing what I'm doing now in particular in this area. But but yeah, you know, I thought uh, this was where I was going to try to make my impact. And in, in, in your case, I mean, your journey was obviously very interesting because, you know, once you got, you know, your, your degree in Chicago, in biology, chemistry, all of that good stuff, then you end up going the more like the research uh, kind of approach. And that brought you from doing your PhD, you know, in, in a place like, like Duke to ending up in Stanford, where you actually met your, your co-founder. So, so research. So what, what kind of background or base do you think, you know, research uh, and that and that and that and that journey and that experience gave you? I, you know, it, it's it's easy to look backwards with with hindsight and say, oh, you know, here, you know, I stopped and learned about whatever molecular biology in my PhD. And I learned about, uh, you know, bioinformatics, machine learning in my postdoc. And I, you know, I learned about technology development and signal processing, even all the way back in my in my um, uh, undergrad research. I think the reality is at the time, it was just sort of do what seems interesting and you know, along the way, obviously trained in medicine, um, uh, tra you know, as a practicing surgeon for a while. I think that the things sort of made sense in hindsight. The funny thing about inflammatics, uh, where we are today, is that uh, it touched on a lot of those areas. Uh, and I think that um, when we were formulating, you know, how to build this company, when Pervesh, my co-founder, and I very first were sitting in the lab saying, like, this, this work that we've done really ought to be a product. I think if I hadn't maybe had my uh, experience in some of those prior areas, it would have been much harder to visualize how that could all come together. Um, so, it, you know, I think it was very much a, just follow the follow the curiosity, you know, what, what seems interesting, and, then, and it happened to come together later. So obviously for you guys, I mean, you met your co-founder here on Stanford, and everything happened in the lab. So, so tell us about that, that process and, and, and that sequence of events towards you guys, you know, saying, okay, I think that we got to do something. Yeah, we met, I met both of my co-founders actually at Stanford. So the first was in my postdoc at Stanford uh, out of residency. Uh, I started in the lab of a guy named Pravesh Khatri, who uh, I was his first postdoc. And we worked together on a project to improve diagnostics. And my focus was uh, on, on post-operative infections and in surgical patients, because that was what I was seeing clinically. And and he he came much more from the sort of bioinformatics you know non clinical side, but it turned out to be a great partnership, and we wrote lots of different kinds of manuscripts, basically um, demonstrating that we had come up with this computational platform for creating novel kinds of medical diagnostics. And at some point, we looked at each other and thought, like, gosh, I mean, this is so good, we ought to turn it from just like a scientific paper into a product, and didn't really know how to do that you know and so i think as as many folks do in in academic settings um we first tried to to license it we thought look somebody you know some company will take this idea they'll go build a product out of it and we went out and we kind of did a little roadshow. you know we talked to big diagnostics companies and said here's our here's our ip you know here's our idea would you like to take this um and in, in a couple of cases they took us seriously and you know, we were invited for lectures or you know to talk to the uh, sort of development groups. But I think it was 
what we were proposing was a little bit too radical for the big company. You know, it was sort of like, well, if you just built a new instrument and imagined a new clinical workflow and onboarded a new technology and the team to build that, you know, and it was like, uh, this is, this is a bridge too far for us. So then we decided, well, maybe we can meet somebody that knows commercializing diagnostics. And I think this is, you know, it's funny, we reached, reached out into the Stanford network, just like almost like a Stanford bulletin board and sort of said, you know, who, who knows something about commercializing novel molecular diagnostics, which seems like a very, very specific skill set, right? But it turned out we met our third co-founder, co Jonathan, in that way. He, he responded and said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I, that's exactly what I do. I've been doing it for 15 years. I, you know, he went to Stanford Business School. And so we started putting together basically a business plan. What would it take to build a startup? You know, and, and especially coming out of academics, I mean, this was not something that I knew anything about, um, but talked to a lot of other recent founders out of Stanford. Stanford has its own accelerator programs. And so joined those and, and started to basically learn, like, what would you need to build a venture backed business? Um, and of course, the problem is, uh, you know, in this space that, that Inflamatics operates in, um, it's FDA regulated medical diagnostics. So we can't just sort of quickly put together something and see how the market likes it. And then, you know, and respond, I mean, it's, it's not like, um, an unregulated market where you, you know, you ship first and you iterate and you get it yeah. better and better over time. We have to build something that, you know, when it makes it through the FDA years later is going to be taken up by customers. Um, and so I think that's a, you know, it was a challenge to fundraise initially and it was, it's been a challenge to build, although obviously we're just on the cusp, I think of finally realizing some of that success and, and, uh, it's been quite a journey so far. So for the people that are listening to really understand what you guys are up to, I mean, how, how would you define inflammatics? I mean, what's, what's, what's really the, the, at the core? Yeah. So, I mean, trying not to be too technical. Basically the idea is that think about today, if you, you know, if you've got a, like a fever and a cough and you go to your doctor and you say, Hey doc, you know, do I have an infection? And in particular, do I need antibiotics? Uh, most people don't realize this, but the doctor basically just guesses. Like we have almost no tests that are very good at picking up bacterial versus viral infections. Um, and even if you're somewhat sicker, you know, sometimes we can do, you know, obviously with the pandemic, like a, like a COVID test right there in the office. But, you know, most people aren't sick with COVID. Most people are sick with something else. And so it, it can be very hard to, you know, establish what's going on. And just one one technical point, like, 40% of antibiotics are estimated by the CDC to be given inappropriately. So this is a decision doctors get wrong a lot. Our, our company builds tests that work rather than looking for a bug. We actually read out a patient's immune response. So we look in the blood, we look at some of the immune markers in the blood, we use machine learning to interpret that. And then we can tell a physician, hey, this patient has a bacterial infection or a viral infection. This is how sick they are. And of course, this test has to be really fast. So it runs in this, um, actually, if you're, if you're watching, runs in a cartridge that looks like this um, in about 30 minutes in a, in a small machine that would run at the doctor's office. Uh, so that's, that's taken a lot to, you know, a lot of basic science around understanding the immune system, creating a rapid test system, then learn how to manufacture that rapid test system and getting it all through regulatory clearance. Uh, and because so we should finally be on the market next year. Because typically for a, for a project like this, I mean, how long does it take until, you know, you're able to really put it in front of people? Because, you know, I'm, I, I, can, I can assume that, you know, during all that process of development, I mean, it, it must be a very capital intensive tool and also a lot of uncertainty for you guys. So how long does it take, you know, for a company like this to really go through that, you know, uh, 
approval, that process, all the way to really bringing, you know, this to, to life and to market. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, they say that an average time for sort of the idea in the lab until it's on the market is about 10 years. Um, and we're on track for about seven years. If you look at the, again, sort of the, you asked the question, how much resources, the average amount that a, a major new diagnostics company has fundraised by the time it hits the market, this is certainly, I mean, there's, there's pretty wide variability, but the, the sort of standard number is like $100 million uh, wow. to bring something out. So how, uh, how do you know if you have product market fit, if there's a real need for this without you being able to really listen to customers? At first, honestly, it was that I, I would have been my own customer. You know, I, I was a physician um, and practiced and thought about like, well, what was my key need? You know, I was trying to solve a problem that I saw in my own practice. I, you know, in surgery, if you take someone for an operation, they always look sick afterwards. Everyone looks sick afterwards, right? I mean, you've sort of you've cut them open, you've done this, this big operation. Um, and the number of people that are actually sick from an infection is pretty low, luckily, maybe five or 10%. But the number of people that look like they could have an infection is like almost 100%. And so we thought, you know, if only we had a better way to figure out who had infections, that would be the, that was this core need. And then of course, we transitioned that as the company grew up into more like, okay, so here's an example of a, you know, here's a target product profile. Is this something you'd use in practice? And we would take that out and we'd, we'd survey different kinds of physicians, you know, emergency department physicians, surgeons and, and infectious disease physicians and folks in the clinical lab, all of these different stakeholders in a hospital. And then we do clinical studies to show that, uh, you know, that, that our product is likely to work. And then we do, you know, on the way to doing clinical studies that show that the product does work. Um, I think the biggest thing is when we connected our venture backers with physicians that knew about the product, they were able to say, hey, you know, is this, is this something you're likely to use? And of course, the, res the response was always pretty enthusiastic. And so that was, you know, that was the big thing. But, it's, but it is really hard, right? You can't easily iterate. You can't just say, oh, you know, people wish the product were a little bit smaller. Uh, you know, just go ahead and make a smaller version of the cartridge and get out. You know, if, you, if you've if you changed the product, that has to go back through regulatory review and everything else. And so it is uh, time intensive and it's labor intensive. Uh, on the other hand, what it means is that the products that, you know, are, do get used in, in people are safe and effective. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily want to be uh, sort of using an experimental product when you go to your physician's office, right? You want it to be reviewed by somebody. So that's the, that's the trade-off. So that what prompted the, um, the pivot that you guys did on year two? Because, I mean, if you're not able to have that type of feedback and, and interaction with potential customers, I mean, why did you know or how did you know that you needed to change course of action? The idea of the product had been the same for years, right? This test that could tell you whether or not you have an infection, how sick you are. But when we got funded, it was an, it was an interesting story. So take you back to when it was Pravesh and, and Jonathan and I sort of, you know, sitting in a room saying, yeah, this is going to be a business. Um, first thing we did was we uh, wrote a grant, actually, to DARPA, who, who ended up funding a this, you know, million dollar grant to, to build the product. And we're very, very grateful for that. And then we started, you know, thinking about what our venture pitch would be. And the most important thing is we knew this statistic that like building a new diagnostic test system would be 50 to $100 million. And like, we certainly didn't have it at the time. And we had this idea that what we had was a platform that allowed us to build new content, right? Formulate new kinds of tests. And that's a little bit unusual in the industry. 
And if you think about like the pandemic, right? Everyone's got the same SARS-CoV-2 test, more or less. They just have sort of a different format to get it out to folks. What we had sort of was a different test and, and frankly, no format to get it out to folks. And our idea was a business model that would basically be like software licensing, right? We had content, we knew we could reproduce it on different platforms. And if we went out and we talked to folks that were already on the market, we could license through our content on their platforms. And that was how Coastal Ventures funded us. They didn't, you know, and we didn't, we didn't want to raise the money to build a device and they didn't want to fund us to build a device because um, it wasn't our core expertise. We were a bunch of computer guys. What ended up happening was we went out as a young company and actually managed to secure term sheets from a bunch of big diagnostics companies to license our technology. And in some ways it was great. The problem was at the very end, we could never convince them to do non-exclusive licensing. So basically we would have had, you know, one partner for test X and a partner, you know, partner B for test Y and partner C for test Z. And, and the problem is since nobody has full market share, it would have really limited the market opportunities for our particular testing. And while it might have allowed us to build like a business, I, I think that informatics could have succeeded and could have done that. It wouldn't have been a big business. You know what I mean? Because we sort of, we always would have needed those partners more than they needed us. And as a result, we always would have been on the losing end of those um, negotiations, right? If they have access to the customer and that's the sole way to, to get to the customer, there's just, they're always going to be able to control the terms. And so we decided this, this isn't going to work. And so we said no to all those term sheets and decided to build our own instrument, decided to go for it. And that was a big pivot. It was hard. I mean, I think that that fundraise took nine months, maybe. It was tough. We were a small company at the time. I think, you know, 10, 12 people, something like that. Um, but finally, uh, we're introduced to the CEO of North Pond Ventures. North Pond is now one of the sort of premier uh, venture backers of diagnostics companies. But at the time, they were, they were a pretty new shop. And Mike Rubin, their CEO, um, had just come over from Sands Capital with his co-founder, Sharon. And they had a they had a big fund, but not too many not too many companies under their belt. And just I think we hit it off right from the beginning. And it was one of those. I was so nervous as an entrepreneur. I mean, you know, Mike was enthusiastic from day one, and and you know, we had a term sheet almost immediately. Um, but uh, you, you know, especially after having so many no's, you, you know, you're sort of sort of like, oh God, is you know, is the money actually going to show up? Uh, but Mike was great, and and sure enough, the money did. And he he really bought into this idea that if we could build our own device and our own content, we could grow into be a big standalone diagnostics company. How much have you guys raised, Tim, in total? A little over 150 million in venture financing, plus we've got non-dilutive development contracts. I sort of hadn't talked much about that, but um, primarily from Barda, who we were contracted with, I would say sort of be before they were cool, uh, now everyone knows Barda from the pandemic, but they've been supporting uh, health security for a long time. So. BARDA, but also DARPA and the NIH altogether is worth about $75 million as well in non-dilutive funding. Nice. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a good chunk of change that we brought together to make this vision a reality. A hundred percent. And I guess as you are raising capital, I mean, you know, it's very really interesting because for SaaS companies and other companies that are developing something more tangible, they can like, you know, showcase some validation to investors. They can talk about their customers and that data that they have been able to achieve. I mean, for a company like this, like Inflamatics, I mean, how, how is that process of, of raising money? I mean, 
you've raised, I mean, you were saying 150 now with the other, you know, probably like over 200, 250, whatever that is. But, but in essence, you know, here, like, what is that journey like from, from one financing cycle to another financing cycle? And how do those expectations change over time for something that is still not tangible? I think it's tangible in the clinical data. Uh, yeah. And that's the biggest thing. You know, we, I think at last count, we had over 60, six zero clinical studies either active or in planning. And it's led to just, I mean, our test has now been tested across thousands of patients in four continents in, in lots and lots of different settings. And what always helped in these conversations, we'd walk in and say, hey, you know, we have a product that can do this amazing thing. And here's some people that say they would like that thing. But critically, here's the clinical data that shows that we will be able to meet this, this demand, right? So it's sort of, you know, like any, like any pitch, it's like, hey, you know, here's a problem in the world, imagine a solution that looks like this. Um, but rather than showing you here's our, here's our ARR, here's our, here's our turnover, here's our, our CAC, whatever it is, um, for us, it's, you know, here's the clinical data showing again and again that, that our products will be able to do this. And then here's data on the actual profile of the device and that it's real and that it will be fast enough to fit into clinical workflows and the cogs will be low enough to support a great margin and all those things um, that go into sort of seeing that this is going to be a good business down the road. Um, you know, every business has risks, right? And, and sort of the, the venture timeline is all about, first, join me in, in the vision that there's a big TAM here. And second, join me in the vision that my solution is a good one to eat up a big part of that TAM. And then third, let's sort of progressively knock down risks until we've done that. And I think it's the same. We just start in a different different place, you know, with a different set of risks and then sort of continually move through. And obviously what you don't want is, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, I don't want an investor who's never done that because it all, they'll be too scared. Well, like, I, you know, I don't know anything about FDA. So, you know, that seems really scary. What we want is a bunch of venture backers who have done that, right? Who have a portfolio of other products that have been through FDA approval or, or clearance. And so they understand what that timeline is and they understand what those risks are and they can work with us. And there's a whole class of investors that are like that. And so it's a, you know, it's often a different group for us. I mean, folks like Coastal Ventures obviously do both, but it's uh it's an interesting journey. And how, how many, how many people do you have on the team now? We're right around a hundred. Got it. And as we are, you know, thinking about, you know, we were thinking about capital raising efforts and, and all of that stuff. I mean, how do you see for a company of this nature, let's say the capital requirements of the use of proceeds changing as you are going from one cycle to another? I mean, how does that also transform? I think the big thing in uh, any regulated industry, right, is, is um, but especially in, in diagnostics, is going to be this question of clearance. You know, you yeah. sort of, you're building product for a while and, and, you know, the burn stays low and suddenly like, okay, if you have access to a market, it's suddenly kind of this like, establish a commercialization team, establish manufacturing and go. Um, and so for us, it would very much was, you know, we have a relatively small team showing how things could potentially be built and validated. And then, hey, okay, there's a slightly bigger team to actually start, you know, final development and begin manufacturing. And now that it's time for like, hey, we need to get all the way through regulatory and actually start building sales teams. And, and you know, suddenly the spend's going to go way up and then we enter revenues and go. The difference, of course, is in a regulated market, it's... Um, you know, barriers to entry are high, but that's true for your competition. And stickiness is high too. You know, if you've, if you've gotten into a hospital that likes your product, um, 
most likely they're going to continue to use your product. And so that's what the, you know, there's lots of big businesses that have um, done very, very well in molecular diagnostics. And so that's why it makes sense for people that are knowledgeable in the space. So, uh, Tim, let's talk about, you know, the, let's say you, you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later. I mean, obviously, five years later, I mean, I'm sure that you've been dreaming about what that would look like, you know, and when you get that approval and you're out there and things are happening. But let's say, you know, you wake up five years from now. And you wake up in a world where, let's say, the, the vision of inflammatics is, is fully realized. What does that look like? We talk about this a lot, actually, currently. It's a good question because, you know, five years ago, the vision was to get the first product to market, right? And sort of now having, having almost accomplished that, um, it's time to think about what comes next. I, I think for those of your listeners that are, are familiar with... Um, the cancer story, uh, sort of historically, uh, we try to draw parallels here, right? Now, in the 1960s, you just had cancer, and it was it was listed by an, an, a site in the body. You know, you had cancer of the breast or the pancreas or or you know the lung. Um, and as we learn more about that, you know, it didn't you didn't just have breast cancer? Then you had you know ERPR positive breast cancer or HER2 new breast cancer. Now you have breast cancer that has these really really advanced molecular subtyping assays. And these big precision medicine companies that if, you know, for your listeners who are familiar with biotech, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that have been built on bringing precision medicine to oncology. Um, and as a result, survival rates have dramatically improved across a number of those cancers. I think, you know, we at Inflammatics believe that the critically ill patient is like this. So for any of you who have known somebody who's been in an ICU you know, it may, it probably seems like a black box, you know, patients is like really sick and they're in the ICU and you're doing everything you can to sort of support them through this. And the reality is in many ways, I think critical illness today is like cancer in the 1960s. You know, we have all these words, but basically they come down to like patients really sick and we don't have advanced immunotherapies that are really good at subtyping patients. And we need all those things. And we've been trying for decades and there have never been good therapies. And so as a result, you know, survival rates and things like sepsis have been pretty flat for 10 or 15 years. And I believe that we can bring precision medicine to this whole class of patients through better, careful, sort of immune uh, subtyping, uh, matching patients to the right therapies to improve outcomes uh, and really bringing this whole, this whole acute care pathway into the sort of the era of precision medicine. And I think we've just begun to see that now with SARS-CoV-2 as the whole world has been working on this one product, excuse me, this one project, um, you know, of, of improving survival in, in COVID. And I think what we can do is bring it to the rest of critical illness as well. So then let, let me ask you this. If I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time and I bring you back maybe to the days that you were in the lab, there is in Stanford and, and you were thinking about like maybe doing something with it, you know, maybe starting a business. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to, yet, to that younger self before launching a company and why, given what you know now? You know, we've made missteps along the way. I mean, everybody does. There are ways we could have done something faster. You know, like I talked about, right? Like if yeah. maybe we had known from, from the very front uh, that, you know, we weren't going to do this sort of licensing model and just go build a device. Maybe we would have been a little bit faster. It's hard, though. I mean, so much of startups, as you know, 
is luck. You know, so much of it is luck. It's, it's, you know, when you happen to meet the right person at the right time, when you've done sort of the right prep work, maybe I would have said, Hey, you know, go, go build a device, uh, earlier. Maybe if I'd done that, informatics wouldn't have worked out. You know, I think a lot of it has been this sort of twisty road that, well, just when thing X was ready, you know, it, it needed a little extra time to incubate. And so the fact that we took a little extra time, you know, was okay. It's kind of a roundabout way of saying, I guess I don't know. I think that whatever success we've had to date, and we're still not done. I mean, we're not done until, by the way, it's not, it's not FDA clearance and it isn't, it isn't an IPO. We'll be done when our, when our products are standard of care and they're making a big difference. Yeah. And, and when that happens, you know, there will have been a lot of help for and after. I think that probably the hardest thing personally was just being so personally tied to the business, you know, and experiencing the emotional ups and downs that come with you know, this round of funding or that, um, if anything, it would have been just, you know, a little more belief, a little less, a little less worry, take some deep breaths, enjoy the ride. I had, I had two boys since the business was founded. We're have, we have our, we're, we're due for our third here in December. Um, you know, family, family happens along the way. Right. So it's sort of this mix of like, I mean, entrepreneurship is incredibly difficult and definitely has some really hard times, but trying to just, um, I don't know, smooth it out a little bit understanding that if you're doing the right thing, you know, you'll make it to the next milestone because um, you're creating value. Uh, I think that's the, yeah, that's probably what I just said. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned this because I find that entrepreneurs, you know, always focus, you know, on the end and getting there. And I think that, you know, along the way, you know, they, they really miss out on, on being able to embrace the journey because it's not about reaching the end or, or reaching the finish line is, it's all about the journey to get there. And, and, and I am right there with you. It's all about having fun. It's all about embracing the ups, embracing the downs, because that's ultimately what is going to make everything worth it in the end. So, so Tim, I'm right there with you. So, so for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi, Tim? Sure. Um, you know, you can, you can reach me certainly over email. It's easy to remember T Sweeney at Inflamatics, um, or, uh, I'm on, Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever else. Uh, always happy to uh, chat with folks interested in the field or, or entrepreneurship. I do think one of the things we can do, if you know, for, for whatever success I've had, I'm happy to to try to pay it forward. I mean, I was I always benefited uh, when I was starting out in my journey from being able to talk to you know folks a few years ahead um, who, who sort of had been through it recently. I think that's you know, founders helping founders is a really important part of the ecosystem and. Um, so I'll always do my best. Amazing. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks again for having me, Alejandro. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.